Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Darrick. Hello, Ben. Gabe, welcome back. Here we are. I know. Season three. Ooh. Are you excited? I am. You know, having read all of the correspondence, the letters, the emails from people, just asking, when will you be back? Here we are. And we are loving it as well. Uh, I'm excited about this particular entry into season three. It's a darker movie. We've come away, a bit of, bit of a holiday, feeling recharged and ready now to descend into a pretty uh, dark and spooky twin movie combination. Very good. So every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today we'll be reviewing two twin movies about a team of cave explorers who fight for survival when they encounter a species of evolved humanoid monsters that want to eat them. It's The Descent versus The Cave. Let the cave diving begin, Mr. Darek. Spelunking. <laughs> it's about spelunkers, I think. <laughs> what are spelunkers? Well, isn't that the term for, for exploring and studying caves? Although ne- neither of these movies really, I guess, capitalise on the word spelunking. Is, is that like basically the equivalent of being a paleontologist? It's Mate, the technical right. Yeah, they're, they're a caver or a potholer. A potholer. Wow, you've really done some serious deep research here. <laughs> this, is the, this is the extent of my research. I read the word potholer and thought, that's it. Can't top that. Well, before we get to your uh, trivia highlights from your research, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 8th of July, 2005, The Descent was released, and here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A caving expedition goes horribly wrong as explorers become trapped and ultimately pursued by a strange breed of predators. Gabe, did you originally catch The Descent when it was released at the cinema, and what was that experience like? I recall in 2005 this being quite a popular movie. I did not see this at the cinema. Um, I must have seen this on DVD or something a year, three years later, I'm not quite sure. I don't know. It's one of those movies I've seen enough times since that I guess that initial viewing has become, you know, fuzzy, as it were. You know how it is. Yeah, I'm the same. I can't recall if I saw it at the cinema or not. I think I caught it on DVD. Um, many of those UK genre films always get a botch release internationally, don't they? I, I guess, although th- this one definitely got a cinema release here, didn't it? I'm sure it did. It did, it did. I think I caught it on DVD because I actually caught it a bit later and I saw it because I was inspired after seeing Dog Soldiers, Neil Marshall's debut film, which came out in 2002. Great movie. So on that movie, I thought, cool, this guy does like a combination of classic horror but with just sort of modern filmmaking sensibilities. Like it just felt faster. It still had that schlock element to it. That's a big, great element but also sort of felt just more kinetic. And so I was pretty pumped for this. And I think I saw it on DVD uh, back in the day when, you know, you go to the video store and you'd actually look at that new release section and actually go, oh, wow, what what is a new release? You weren't surfing Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb or <sighs> tracking the release dates. You just get like a little surprise, like, ah, oh, there's another film with, um, I don't know, who's the guy? Who are those guys that always pop up besides Ice-T in all those directed DVD movies? I mean, these days it's Bruce Willis. Uh, but who's the guy, Curtis, what's his name, the rapper? Curtis 50 Cent. 50 Cent, exactly. 
Right, okay. I forget what his surname is. Jackson, Curtis Jackson. Jackson, exactly. There you go. Yeah. Um, oh, what a time that was, wasn't it, 2000? The hal- halcyon era of DVD. Oh, I can still smell the, the blockbuster, the, you know. Oh. And the studios could also smell that sweet, sweet money as well. Like it was rainy Benjamins. I remember they just thought it was glory times. Like, hang on. Are you telling us we can release a movie at the cinema and make money and then make more money on DVD? Like, this will never end. Hey, hey, while we're talking about this, did your video store have a system whereby, like, my local blockbuster or, uh, you know, independent video store or what have you, you'd go there and they'd have, like, the case of the movie and then behind the case of the movie they'd have another case maybe with, like, a plain printed background and they'd be like, you've got to take the case behind the case the, the case of the DVD is just there to advertise the movie and it, it would be kind of anarchy because people wouldn't quite understand the system of how to rent the movie. Yeah, I agree. And was the reason that was the case, excuse the pun, was that you were meant to – then you'd see this whole shelf of movies. So you'd see like say five copies That's right. of The Descent or if it was a new release, like a number one film like, I don't know, like a Jurassic Park type movie, there'd be like ten. And – you could tell if they were taken out because it was more the case was more flush to the bookshelf because it wasn't sitting on top of the uh, nondescript case. That's right, that's right. But you know, sophisticates like you and I would understand the system. But you know, when Blockbuster was flogging get it first time or get it free, and you really wanted Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, and they had like thirty, you know, there was there was. I don't know, uh, people perhaps not unlike the monsters who live in the caves here who just couldn't wrap their head around that you had to take the plain packaged case behind the case. Yeah, but to be fair, that whole system was basically a solution in search of a problem in that they basically wanted you to see a bookshelf just full of the titles and think, oh, wow, all these movies and not just see like empty white shelves. That's but true. it just caused confusion and annoyance because you'd see it and you'd grab it and quite reasonably take it home because – the expectation already been set for like the preceding 20 years of the VHS tapes where you take home the one with the actual cover with the artwork on it so you could read the synopsis at the back and kind of savour the whole experience run taking home this sort of like no-name brand version case. I know. And then you'd pick up, go to the go to the counter and they'd say, oh, that one's already been taken out. And you'd say, no, I'm actually holding the case here. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, I, man, I've got Hitch. I'm holding Hitch in my hands. i, I got to enjoy some... Hitch, uh, you know, uh, i got to get my fix a hitch. and These Will Smith antics might watch themselves. <laughs> that's right. And then we were, we were hitchless that weekend because of the system, you know. I had to resort to perhaps. Yeah, it's a dumb system. Anyway, look, it's a digression, and I wonder if that system was unique to Australia. Probably not. Was it the downfall of DVD? That's right. Was it the start of the streaming wars? Perhaps. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Although DVD streaming, I still would wander the aisle, as it were, or the or scroll the app for hours and hours on end, you know, before sadly settling on something that I'd fall asleep 40 minutes into. <laughs> <laughs> um, I must say, just to really sort of bathe and savour in this digression, nothing brought me more joy, particularly as a student, than the 10 movies $10 deal for oh, a week. Oh. That was a great deal, wasn't it? Uh, and and you probably cranked through, you know, three or five of them on the first night. Just the, the excitement of, of having, oh, I've got Ghost Ship. I've, I've been just waiting to for that to be a buck. Now I can watch it. Yeah, Ghost Ship was the Australian equivalent of The Descent, but a sort of lower-grade version in that it was, an Austra- it was made in Australia, but it was an American movie 
that kind of flew under the radar. Is that right? <laughs> or was it an Australian film? I can't recall. No, no, I think it was an American movie, but they definitely shot it in Queensland or something because, you know, Alex Demetriatis turns up, you know, as a playing a Mexican oil fitter or something, you know. That's um, right. That's right. Anyway, that's right. Yeah. Ten, 10 for 10 or 7 for 7, depending on your, your locale. Oh, amazing. Just great. <laughs> um, okay, before we leave the cinema, let's look at the 26th of August, 2005, when The Cave was released. And here's its synopsis from IMDb. Bloodthirsty creatures await a pack of divers who become trapped in underwater cave network. Hey, by the way, on that IMDb synopsis, bad choice of the word pack. You say the word pack for the creatures, not for the divers. You agree? Well, yeah, true. Bloodthirsty creatures await a pack of divers. You call the divers the team and you call the creatures the pack. Yeah, and you call the divers the spelunkers. So, like, they're just not even getting it at all here, are they? <laughs> so walk me through when and how you first watched The Cove. Uh, now, do we know if this even got a theatrical release in Australia? Because I didn't see this at the cinema, but, you know... I guess this was at a time where still movies like this were being released at the cinema. Do we know? Uh, was it released in Australia? I don't know. I can't recall. I mean, IMDb. I can look really quickly. What does it say on IMDb? IMDb has a release info. You know, it does say Australia, um, the 25th of November or something. But, you know, who quite knows? Uh, anyway. I can't look- recall this film being made in Australia, which is unusual because normally you always become aware in the film industry of a film, an American film being shot in Australia. I can't even recall any talk or rumours or, or rumblings of being made in Australia. And I didn't even know it existed, yet alone released at the cinema, until you told me. I had no idea. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't see this because it was made in Australia. I must have rented this as part of one of those, you know, um, 10 for 10, we had been talking about because I don't recall seeing it at the cinema and I don't recall pulling it off the shelf from behind the case to be the first to see The Cave. Um, Again, I've actually seen this a couple of times since 2005. You know me, Ben. I'll watch any movie twice. Um, (laughs) But the the specifics, the the specifics, Specificity? <laughs> How do you... Uh, the specifics of this movie remain lost? That's that's true. Lost like the the first expedition of potholes. <laughs> look at you. Look at you. Uh, as for me, I can't recall anything about this movie in, in its existence. You mentioned the movie <laughs> existed. I watched it um, on video on demand at home and back to back actually. With really? The Descent, which is actually a nice little way to watch them. A double? A double, yeah. Wow. So let's find out how we got here with a bit of a shallow dive in the Hollywood history. Are you aware of the origins of Neil Marshall's The Descent? Uh, not much beyond that it uh, was the film he made after Dog Soldiers. Yeah. Interestingly enough, he was actually approached to do this and said no originally because he didn't want to do another genre film directly after Dog Soldiers, which is interesting because if you watch Dog Soldiers, to me it's by someone who loves a B-grade horror thriller, like, you know, unashamedly. Like, it's not a film that he's made, you know, for the studio or for someone else. It's a gritty, uh, handmade movie that tips its hat at those Hammer horror movies and sort of feels very much part of his DNA. And if you look at the other movies he's made, it's very much reflective of his career to come. But surprisingly, 
he wasn't interested in actually doing something like this. He then decided he could do something different by actually changing all the characters to make them female and therefore adjusting the characterization accordingly to be, you know, reflective of their their new genders and that would give something fresh to it. And then they actually had to ramp up uh, production, accelerate the whole process when they got a bit of a wind of the cave being made in the States. And that's how they got a one-year jump on the cave's release. Yeah, right. Hmm, interesting. Um, there are a few little more bits of trivia. I might save those, though, to the spoilers, mainly in relation to the actual uh, the creatures, the humanoids themselves. Um, as for the cave, um, its origins, um, it actually was an original story uh, as well. It was not based on any pre-existing property, uh, but it just appears to be serendipitous that it came into existence around the same time as the cave. In fact, every time we go through this comparison, Gabe, I think I'd probably count on one hand in 50 episodes where two films came into existence somewhat knowingly. These ones, when they were being made, were sort of racing each other to the finishing line, which is more common, but there didn't seem to be any sort of similarity as to how they started about. Like, for example, how, speaking of cave movies, there's like five cave movies in the works about that, you know, that, that, Thai rescue of the, of the uh, soccer team, the kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, which makes more sense because it's based on a true life story and everyone wants to try and do an adaptation at the same time. But, uh, yeah, that's how we got there. It appears to be pure serendipity. But 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 you're saying the, the development was serendipitous, but the production, there was an element of chase there. Exactly. Oh, very exactly. good. It's nice to have yeah. a little bit of drama there. You know? Exactly, yeah. Matches the drama of the film. Ah. So let's start with The Descent, shall we? The first one released uh, from the UK. So did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of this common premise it shares with The Cave? It's just a pretty good movie, isn't it? I think it is. I think it's actually a very good movie. I'll wait till you get to the Rotten Tomatoes scores later on, but I think Roger Ebert or someone gave it like four stars out of four. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, fairly well-deserved. It's it's pretty uh, claustrophobic and terrifying. I recall the first time I saw it. I mean, all the stuff of the the women jammed in the you know in the sort of one foot high. It just makes you go, "What are these knuckleheads doing? I would not do this." Do you get what you deserve? <laughs> Wait, I don't think that's supposed to be the takeaway. But you know, like it does an incredibly good job of selling that kind of you know tension of. Of, of feeling trapped. Yeah, it does. I, I think um, it's also does a great job of actually trying to characterise a group of similar-looking people. So by that I mean a lot of the women have long hair and look similar in the dark. Do, do, you, uh, do you mean except for Natalie Mendoza they're all white ladies? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, totally, totally. Uh, but they're like the same height, they're the same body shape. It's the conundrum you have when you're trying to make a war movie. Like how do you try and characterise soldiers who – are all usually the same, often one of one or two different races. They're all the same gender. They're usually the same sort of weight. And they're wearing like a combination of mud and uniforms, which make, make it hard to try and, you know, characterise one against the other. This film has the same trouble, except it's also underground in the dark, which makes it even harder. And most of them have British accents or Scottish, Irish accents, so they all sound quite similar. And despite that, I think it actually does a reasonable job in a horror film with the whole used to be, you know, quote, men on a mission, unquote, to try and actually define each of these characters against the other, which was, you know, really challenging to do. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does get a little bit difficult. If I said to you, oh, how did how did Sam, Holly and Beth die? You might be like, which one was Sam, which one was Holly and which one was Beth? I mean. Oh, don't get me wrong. I can't, I can't tell you which three characters are which out of those six characters. <laughs> like. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, the, the, the two standouts are obviously um, uh, the, 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 the character of Sarah and the character of Juno. I think they do a very good job setting them up, you know, and having the sort of tension of the drama of, uh, I guess, the the backstory to their characters, you know, that uh, her husband is dead and she had been having an affair with him. It's nice. It's good. And it has that great opening where the metal, where, or, you know, the metal, uh, what do you call those? Uh, poles straight through the, in the car accident, right through the guy's head. Yeah, it's through the car good. seat as well, like so evocative. Very good. Yeah. And a dead kid. Not many movies open with dead kids. I know. You love to see it. I think the, I think, <laughs> I think the standard for dead kids uh, in opening, like a cold opening of a movie, would have to be probably, is it Three Colours Blue? Oh, yep. Where the car crashes and the, and the kid dies. Not as graphically as in this film, but, you know, it's like that whole thing where if you kill a, a dog or kill a kid, it sort of sets a certain tone for the movie and the stakes are pretty high. There you go. That's the problem. That's the anxiety that this person lives with. That's their internal battle they have to overcome. Um it's a really simple kind of classic motivational strategy for a screenwriter, but I think it's executed and exploited quite well here. Yeah, you know, and they spend enough time setting up the characters that you sort of, like you said, you feel you get to know them before you chuck them in the cave and then it's basically just a a chase out, isn't it, with, you know, a few points of pretty terrific, um, uh, what would you call it, twists or turns or... Uh, you know, particularly, are we allowed to say spoilers, Ben? Let's jump into spoilers straight away. Okay. You know, the idea of having uh, Natalie Mendoza's character, Jun- uh, Junior, <laughs> Junior, uh, Juno, kill by accident, but then cover up one of the other uh, spelunkers, that's a pretty great, pretty great twist, I think. I think that's very effective. I think when movies, survival movies, actually have someone die accidentally in the pursuit of trying to save themselves, it's just a great example of how unfair life can be. Like the last thing you need to do is accidentally die as a result of something else or at the hands of one of the people on your side. Another example is a war movie where someone accidentally shoots, you know, someone else. It's friendly fire. Yeah, totally. It's like it just just crushes the human spirit. Like really? Not only are we fighting the environment, we're fighting the enemy, we're also just fighting the accidents amongst us that kill each other. And it just, to me, amplifies the tragedy. Yeah, that's right. And I guess, you know, they, they sort of want a, I wouldn't call her a villain, um, but, you know, having one of the, the human characters sort of morally compromised I think is really interesting. Um, um, and I guess she's not really a villain because the character has a degree of nuance and because she is performed quite well. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's... An interesting situation where they try and double down on two choices she's made that actually kind of makes the audience not root against her, but certainly root for Sarah, the protagonist, instead. And those are that she had an affair with Sarah's husband off screen before the movie starts. And then she actually has three things. She accidentally kills that woman and then having done that, then like leaves her to be killed by the monsters. I think it's it's really the third choice which is the most damning of her character, isn't it? Like 
the first the first one's an affair, but you don't deserve to die for an affair. The second one's accidental, but the third choice, which is to basically to abandon her friend, is really the final nail in the coffin. Definitely, 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 and 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 abandon her, you know, to to these to these monsters. Um, and perhaps we should uh, talk about them because how good. And it's fairly iconic is that first shot where they use the the camcorder. One of the characters has brought like a camcorder down and she's like panning around the cave and and old Bat Boy or whatever is right there behind one of the other uh, cave divers. As pretty terrific jump scare. Oh, it, You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And the other one is where she sees either the same one or a different one crouch at the water like Gollum, yeah. like across like a sort of chasm just sort of drinking water, like sitting on its haunches. Like it is haunting. And that's actually, to me, one of the biggest things to discuss in this movie. This movie is not Jaws. Unlike Jaws where you don't see the shark and your imagination is the most, I guess, fearful thing, in this movie you see, what should we call these things, the monsters? They're like the the cave dwellers, right? You see them in all their glory. Like Neil Marshall shows you every detail of them and regularly. I was actually really surprised because it's increasingly, not increasingly, it's pretty common since Jaws to go, let's imply the monster off screen, right? Yeah, for quite it's a while. It's sure. cheaper as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And you're right, like either you don't show much of it at all or you delay the reveal until, you know, the third kill or something like that. There was a recent movie about it. About a year ago, with Kristen Stewart called Underwater, which is basically like Aliens meets uh, what's that movie that James Cameron did, Underwater? Oh, it's The Abyss. It's very Lovecraft. I actually saw this at the cinema because I'm big into Cthulhu, uh, Lovecraft type stuff. Uh, yeah, so it's basically Aliens meets The Abyss, and very similar to this film in some ways. But you don't see the alien until you know. 60 minutes into the movie, whereas here, once they show it after the first couple of times, you see these humanoids the entire time. So I'm dying to hear from you, as someone who like loves horror movies, loves thrillers, loves sci-fi, because these things are alien-esque, what did you think of Neil Marshall's decision to really just sort of like pull back the camera and show these things in all their glory? Like you see their legs, their arms, you see them in full shots. I think I mean I think you see them taking a shit. <laughs> like Do? You? Yeah, they don't they hide at one point in like the toilet? The 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 crawler the crawler's toilet. <laughs> Is that a toilet? Yeah, I think they fall in there. Maybe, you know. Um, <laughs> look, I think it works. I mean look, it's a it's a good movie, so the decision is obviously justified. I mean they can be a little bit uh, obscured by the dark, but the design of them is also great. So I think you know, you can be confident with that. And it's interesting when we talk about the cave, I think, you know, we can do a little compare and contrast with the, the choices around the design of these these monsters. But I think they've picked a really great look for the creatures in this. Yeah, I, I think the look is a look that makes you fluctuate between asking the question, are they humans who have evolved or are they some other species entirely that has, like, humanoid features, like an ape, for example, or are they even an alien? And I mean, don't they, don't they, it doesn't in the mythology of the film, they they explain that they have evolved from? I can't recall. I didn't think so. I think one of the characters might make the point that 
they have evolved to have to essentially be blind but have great sonar abilities, very bat-like. But I don't think they actually suggest they've evolved from humans. Well, well, it, it's interesting. Whereas in the cave, we'll get to there's like a closer link between. Yeah, that's right. Previous explorers and so and, on. And both of these movies hit that almost identical beat of getting down there, feeling like the cave had never been explored before, and then finding like some, you know, old timey, old timey pothole and equipment. We're just going a pothole and uh, in the you know old old ye oldie days. Um, so w- with that potholing, was your interpretation of the descent that these humanoids were once cave explorers who have evolved? No, no, because no one evolves into Batman in 130 years, you know. Yeah, exactly. To me, this like almost like caveman level evolution, you know, over thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, um, And, yeah, I, I can't recall. I think someone might say that. I mean, maybe they're just spitballing. Like how else would these cave persons have got? Down here. Yeah, exactly. These cave monsters, you know. Um, I think the real giveaway as to their origins was when you had the reveal of the baby humanoid, the baby cave dweller, and the female cave dweller. Because up to that point, you kind of look at, look at them as just being gender neutral. Like they've got like a shaved head. I, they, could, they could be kind of masculine, but they could be anything basically. But once you see the female cave dweller with like long hair that looks close to a female – and the, the baby one, you go, oh, okay, so there's different genders and they're breeding like a family. And that's when I think you realise, oh, okay, these are basically humans who have evolved over centuries underground. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember if it's in the end of this one or the beginning of the sequel. They sort of start, you know, expanding on the mythology as it was and having some sort of local yeehaw former, farmer, you know, some guy who's been feeding them this whole time, which is kind of a bit stupid, you know. Doesn't that kind of undermine the entire start of the movie where basically it appears they actually drag, you know, deers and stuff from the surface underground? That's right. That's right. That's right. And instead it's just some, you know, hillbilly chucking chucking, chucking meals down there. But Can I ask you a question about the factual accuracy of this mythology? So... Are you, because I'm a potholer? <laughs> they live underground, right? these humanoids, but they come to the surface to eat. That doesn't make sense. Like if they came to the surface to eat where therefore they'd be weak, shouldn't they just live on the surface? Like if you evolve under, if you evolve to actually become blind and stuff, that would infer that there's a food source or a benefit to being underground. Well, I mean, you know, the Morlocks live underground. But they still come up to eat the Eloy. Like Well, I'm questioning that mythology as well. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Um, yes, that's a fair point. But perhaps some of these deer just blunder into the hole. And maybe most of the time they just eat crickets. Okay, here, I'll answer my own question. It's like killer whales that actually risk dying by beaching themselves to attack a seal uh, and try and attack or a penguin because it's easier or better for them to try and snatch a penguin or a seal off the beach than actually in the deep water where they live. There you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Answer my own question. <laughs> the orca answer, sure. <laughs> now, I'm dying to hear what you think about the ending, because this film has two endings, the US ending and the UK ending, which is the original ending. Yeah. 
Do you want to describe to our podcast listeners the difference between them and then what you think is the better ending and what that says about the story reflectively? So the <clears throat> the, the version I have, which is the Australian Blu-ray release, ends with um, the main character, Sarah, she's gets out, she crawls out of the cave, gets back to her car, she drives away, she pulls over, spews, she gets sort of leans back into her car and then there's, she's startled. She's scared by the ghost of Juno sitting in the passenger seat. And clearly a ghost because she's driven about 100 kilometres an hour for like five minutes. So Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like she's, not, she's not there. Um, um, then she wakes up and she's in the cave revealing the escape was just a dream. Then she has a vision of her daughter's having like a little uh, uh, blowing out candles of a birthday cake. Um, the camera pulls back and reveals, you know, she's she's still stuck at the, at the you know, the bottom of this big stinking cave and there's no way out. The US version just ends, uh, I believe, when she gets startled by Juno, implying that she escaped from the cave but perhaps will be haunted by the experience forever. Um, yeah, so basically the US version is less of a Debbie Downer. Yeah, and I have to say here, I think the US one is better. Uh, wow, I'm surprised. If I'd had all the money in the world, I would have bet that you'd have preferred the Australian-UK ending. Why? Do you think I just like sad sack endings about- Yep, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> the- no, I think in a movie like this, like like I think in a movie like this you want some sort of a, you know, a, a cathartic ending. I mean, look, we talked about Jaws before. I don't think Jaws would be nearly as good a movie as if after Chief Brody and- um, um, Richard Dreyfus blew up the shark and was swimming back to shore. They were eaten by an orca, you know. Yeah, I agree. I or agree. you revealed they were so far out to sea that they're just going to have to now listlessly drown together. You know, you go, ah, oh, that's a bit shit. So, so, <laughs> and, I, and I guess I don't like the US version more, just so it sets up more opportunity for sequel or whatever, because I think the sequel uses the US ending as the sort of jumping-off point, but. I don't know. Why? Why? Which do you like more, Ben? Do you? Well, I think the difference between Jaws and, say, this film is that Schneider's character and the rest of the crew haven't, like, lost their family already. Like, imagine if Jaws started where basically Roy Schneider's wife was attacked and killed by Jaws, right? And then the whole film continues as it is and, of course, he survives. That's already more of a downer of a film than the current version of Jaws. This film, The Descent, starts with her losing her daughter and her husband in a horrific accident. Not just like a plane exploding, but like, you know, it's pretty <laughs> gruesome, right? Well, it's a car accident with like- A plane exploding. You know, they're not killed instantly. It's not like, exactly. It's, right. it's, it's a very, you know, evocative kind of gruesome death, right? They're basically speared by metal pole through their heads or their chests in a car accident. So they die and they die horrifically. Right. So. Whatever way this film goes, her life has already been screwed and then they set this to be basically a cathartic way of her to find herself more independent and strong. That was the intention of the original cave trip. But as it turns out, she almost dies and loses all of her friends and also basically benefits by discovering herself and feeling more confident. But at the end of this movie, you know, she's still in a shit place where she's lost her daughter, Husband and five best friends. Yeah, and basically we scarred for life, and no one will believe her because, of course, they who- could believe her. She could drive him back. Oh yeah, true. Just you know. Yeah. Anyway, her life is screwed. So, 
the UK ending is like a downer on a downer on a downer sandwich. Um, and I also often don't mind those, but uh, I think we should also say it's quite clear she's going to die at the end of the UK version because what she thinks is she's imagining basically a birthday cake and her daughter, and then as the light kind of like slowly goes out, it becomes apparent she's actually looking at the wooden torch she's holding, and you hear all the sounds of these cave dwellers coming towards her. So implicitly she's going to die. I think that's pretty clear in the UK version. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I, I I actually like the idea of the US version where as she drives away and sees the ghost of Juno, who, by the way, we should say seconds before, she stabs Juno in the leg with a pickaxe to basically wound her so that she's slowed down and then leaves her to be eaten alive by the cave dwellers. So there's an act of revenge and sort of heartlessness at the end. I'm not saying it's unjustified, but she'll now be haunted by that action. And whether she sees Juno or not, she's going to be morally haunted for the rest of her life. And I kind of like that as well because she she loses but she wins. Yeah. And that's to me always the best ending for a movie, whereas in the UK version, she just loses. And to me that's a little bit less complex. That's right. And doesn't make her reflect on her moral choices. That's right. That's right. I, I, I totally agree. And I guess depending on whether you watch the sequel or not, you know, um, you might find that uh, Juno as well has not, in fact, uh, perished here and comes back for a little bit of redemption. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, interesting. Have you have you seen part two? No. Have you? Uh, yeah. I've, 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 like I said, I bought Spoil the, it for our audience. the Blu-ray double the, double, the double feature. So is Juno back as a ghost? No, she's she survived down there. They go back. They Another group oh. of cavers turns up to... You know, uh, I can't remember why. The police make, <laughs> apparently, yeah, I mean, the police force, um, what's her name, uh, the main character, Sarah, to lead them back to the to where this all happened and they go into the cave and there she is. Is this like days afterwards, like in the same timeline or is it like years later? No, it's like days after. I mean, look, it's not particularly believable that someone who's been so traumatised by all of this would be forced to return. Okay. But, you know. And what happens? Is Juno's down there? Juno's alive. Yeah, Juno turns up, saves some of them, and then I think does some sort of noble sacrifice. I can't exactly remember because my memory of the sequel is a bit fuzzier because I've seen it less times. But you know. Okay. All right. Um, was there anything that didn't work compared to the cave? Did the cave do anything better? I mean, we jumped that review in a sec. But was there anything that you thought, besides the ending of the descent, just didn't quite hit the nail on the head? You know what's kind of interesting about this movie? In my naivety of seeing it in, like, 2005, I guess I assumed they filmed it in a real cave. And I was like, man, that must have been terrifying for everyone. But, like, what a dumbbell. Of course they just built sets. I actually thought they filmed a real cave as well only because it looks so good. I've seen Hollywood movies like Cliffhanger. Yeah, totally. That classic film from 93, which uses practical sets and whatever. It The rocks look like... Absolute cardboard. It looks horrendous, like foam and cardboard. This film's made for $10 million and it looks so authentic. Like it's done so well. And they're, they're decent-sized sets. Oh, it's or they make them feel huge. Totally, totally. It's really, really well done. Like you never get a sense of, oh, that's just, yeah, polystyrene. I mean, I guess there's a few little pieces of CGI that don't quite live up to that. Where they basically try and expand the scope of the cave around them. Yeah. You know, there's some bats that come flying out of like a bat hole. Um, 
uh, that, you know, I guess don't sell quite as well as as just that practical um, set stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like what sort of a knucklehead filmmakers would be crazy enough to actually go and do this, you know. But, yeah, it's just a testament to the to the pretty excellent production design. Well, let's um, get oh, – and, and, and photography, I guess, you know. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I think for a film in this budget and also for Neil Marshall as his second film, I think it looks incredibly accomplished and looks like it has higher production values than The Cave, um, besides having a better story as well. So perhaps we should get to The Cave. So, Gabe – what did you like? What grinded your gears? And did do a better version of the same concept than The Descent? So, I mean, we can agree that The Cave is sort of a more of a schlockier version of this story. They go for a bit more action. There's a bit more of like a sci-fi element. It's all around a bit sillier. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You know, so so I guess one of the key differences, and, and this is actually a point that I quite like a lot is that Cole Hauser, hell yeah, uh, his character of Jack McAllister, he gets kind of infected by the monsters and they have this sort of plot point where he starts, you know, uh, developing extrasensory powers and can Jack McAllister be trusted to lead them out of the cave before he succumbs and turns into one of the, I guess... These are sort of more like pterodact, like underground pterodactyls. Well, they're humans that evolve into underground pterodactyls, aren't they? Yeah, uh, totally. So, so this movie really tries to do, I, I guess, a lot more like verticality. Like the caves are much larger. They go for less sort of claustrophobia, although there is elements of that and much more like, you know, these open areas of giant underground chasms so that these flying monsters can zoom around a little bit. Um, well, I think they set up well by saying that there was basically like an underground cathedral of some sort. So it's basically like the idea of that scope and scale of a cathedral underground, which suits the idea of these creatures being winged opposed to the cave where, you know, it's slippery and dark and narrow. And so the idea of a sort of slimy little white humanoid slinking around kind of suits that environment more, whereas they're given a production design that suits the character of these monsters better in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't make sense, but... <laughs> That's right. You know, totally. And that being said, I think the, the design of the, the monsters in The Descent is much stronger. Um, um, but, you know, we get a pretty good uh, team here of sort of actors that you recognise, but you're not quite sure where from, you know. Um, you're like, oh, here they are. I love to... Coyote Ugly. Whatever happened to Parapara Parabaro? There she is. <laughs> uh, you know, Lena Headey, Morris Chestnut, some guy from CSI, something or other, Cole Hauser. Fuck yeah, Cole Hauser. Have I already said that? I might have. Keep uh, your powder dry. The awards know, are coming. Uh, you know, so so that's pretty fun. You know, I do like these sorts of films where you have that sort of a, of a cast. Um, I don't know. There you go. That's my okay. two cents. What's well, yours? <laughs> It's a simple review for a simple movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, look, there's some good parts about it. Let's discuss the concept back-to-back with the concept behind The Descent. Now, I think The Descent is more grounded as a, both a movie, a concept, everything about the production values. Like, it just feels like a more grounded, naturalistic movie. Totally. Compar- comparatively. This one kind of doubles down as a Hollywood and more high-concept movie in many ways. So- 
from the start, this is an elite team. These aren't like recreational cave divers like in the descent. This is like an elite team that has elite gear. They've got like the only 24-hour rebreather to, you know, be able to sort of dive for a whole day, you know, uh, underwater and so on. Um, so the scale's bigger in that regard. The expertise of the team is stronger. You know, they're, they're international experts. These high-vaulted ceilings and these underground caves are much more, um, you know, it's like Baroque and uh, mm. elaborate. Um, as you say, there's more sort of vertical cave diving than horizontal cave diving. Um, so everything just feels a little bit grander. Um, yeah, and I, yeah. I like the concept of the infection. Like that's worked well in lots of movies. Like I think that film that came out, Life, which was tagged as a bit of an alien ripoff. It was the one which has Jake Gyllenhaal, I think, and Ryan Reynolds, where uh, those guys discover some alien life form in space and it kind of grows and so on. And it's a common trope of sci-fi where the alien becomes the humour and affects them. I think the thing is the most obvious example. I mean, the, it's the that's the that's the all time classic, right? Version, right? I mean, apart from things like body snatches and stuff like that, but yeah, the thing, obviously. Um, and so the the whole setup where they sort of tease these little alien esque creatures, which you think are the aliens, but then it becomes apparent that they're actually other life forms that have been affected by this bacteria or whatever it is, and or this virus, and sort of mutated, and the idea that the original cave dwellers back in the day or the original priests or whatever became infected and then evolved into these life forms. That's a pretty cool idea. You know, that's a cool idea. Um, I think at the start of the film you see one of the explorers with a tattoo and then you see one of the aliens with the same tattoo and that sort of like is the clue that, oh, right, these are actually evolved humans. And I like that idea because when you've got monsters that have evolved from humans it makes it a bit more ambiguous as to when you kill them, what you're actually killing, because obviously they become infected against their own will. So you're essentially murdering a human, albeit a human that's mutated. Well, and- yes, well, hold on. It's not like this movie sets up that perhaps there is a cure for these uh, wretched souls, you know. Well, that's I where think- I'm going. That, okay. to me, would have been a good version of the movie where right. basically you make it more of a moral conundrum because you kind of have that with Cole Hauser's character where well, he becomes infected. And so there's this sort of tension that they need to take advantage of his new evolving skills, right, mm-hmm. to get out of the cave mm-hmm. in that he can kind of sense the monsters and his own senses are being heightened, which will help them escape the cave. So it's that ticking time bomb. They want to mm. use him to get out of the cave before he turns. I mean, Actually, the most obvious reference we've left out here is, of course, your favourite genre, zombie movies. Uh, yes. You want to hold on to someone for as long as you can, but if you don't kill them or abandon them soon enough, you'll die yourself. Sure. So that's a cool idea. So taking that sort of zombie ticking clock conundrum's great. And then Cole Hauser himself has that conundrum where he wants to help them enough, but his own set awareness as to who he is will reach a point where he becomes more alien than human and may turn on them. So I like that. I just don't think they do enough with that. Mm. And I thought it would be really cool if the aliens down there weren't humans from 100 years ago, where they've got no connection to, but are perhaps maybe a maybe like imagine it was his dad. Imagine his dad went missing, caving, doing cave diving 20 years ago. Right. 
and they're going to go back to this place, which means he's going to have an op- option to try and overcome the trauma of the past vicariously that his father went through, but also internally for himself. But then also he encounters his dad and then has this conundrum of, do I put my dad out of his misery by killing him? Um, like that would have been some sort of moral conundrum which would have been more interesting to me than this group of strangers from 100 years ago that have now converted to being alien-esque creatures. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right and perhaps we should actually hold that idea for a sequel pitch, some sort of cave dad. Um, Genius. Cave dad, uh, I like it. Thing. Um, but, yeah, you're right. You know, he Cole Hauser gets infected quite early and it's interesting as he gets, like, super superhuman powers, but it's not like he infects anyone else or they, they're struggling to find a cure or, or kind of anything like that. And, you know, something that the thing does so exceptionally well is the tension around who has been infected. You don't really get this that here, not that, I mean, this is a different story to that, but yeah, it feels like there's a couple of ways they could have gone and instead just go for Jack McAllister is the best there is, but now he's also double best there is because he's superhuman uh, and, yeah. can, and can hear good. Uh, I mean, they give him a brother to try and make it tense as to, you know, I guess to give him someone who believes in him when the rest of the team starts sort of like doubting him, but... I don't think they set up their connection as brothers at the start to be strong enough to have that pay off in any way. No, no, that's right. I can't actually remember this, Ben, and it's a little embarrassing. Why are they going down into the cave in the first place in this one? I can't even remember. I can't even remember. Um, it's not a rescue, is it? I don't think so. No, no. Is it just for science? Just It's just for science. They're going for science. Maybe it's just science. I Actually, it's funny you mention that. I remember the film basically from the very start where you have this scene from 100 years ago or something or 40 years ago where it's actually a bit confusing. You've got a group of people, I think, in the 60s who are trying to unearth a cathedral or monastery that collapsed 100 years ago and then it collapses on them and then we cut to 20 years later. It's like this unnecessary extra element that doesn't seem to add anything at all. Like you could have essentially had these guys just uh, get contacted because through sonar or sort of some sort of, you know, special computer geological mapping, they've discovered this underground cathedral and only these guys have the expertise and the equipment to go down to explore it and that's the end. And, in fact, yeah. make, it, make it just a treasure hunt. Yeah. Like Yeah. I mean I just I just quickly Googled and the IMDB storyline, uh, you know, obviously written by a user. Um it's like decades after a rock church in communist Romania, Carpathians caved when and this is not particularly well written storyline. Hey, if you're out there and you want to rewrite the caves um, storyline, you should get on it. Caused a landslide and buried everyone. Dr. Nikolai's scientific team exploring the associated night. Templar monster fighting legend, what? Discover a deep flooded cage system and hires the brilliant brothers Jack and Tyler. Do you, I don't recall anything about Knights Templar and is that is there a knight? Do they find like some Indiana Jones Knights Templar shit? What the hell? Yeah, I'm rereading Wikipedia and there's something similar as well. So this wow, I don't film is clearly unmemorable in that regard. Um, it's a bit like Prometheus, isn't it? Where in Prometheus they kind of discover cave paintings on a wall and that ends up being some sort of map to the star system. 
I think in this film they discover this sort of these ideas of these winged demons depicted on a, on a mosaic on the Abbey's floor, and so they believe that cave could be an entirely undiscovered ecosystem. That's why they hire Jack and his mate oh. to uh, inspire. But again, not memorable and um, didn't really add anything at all. No. Okay. Fair enough. Um, there you go. So, look. To me, there are many missed opportunities in that regard. Like if you look at just those touch points we talked about, uh, The Thing, but also just any zombie movie, there were better opportunities, I think, to exploit the whole idea of infection, which this film doesn't do. And then when they are infected, I just don't think the choice of the winged monsters added anything. I mean, what do you think? I mean, let's talk about the character design of the creatures. I couldn't even tell you what they look like because – they weren't memorable. The CGI was pretty terrible. They were kind of like, I guess you'd call them a human gargoyle mishmash. Yeah. Um, they sort of look like the, you know, the not particularly great CG bird things that smack against the window in the movie The Mist or something, you know, um, obviously a much better movie. But, yeah, they're not, they're not, they're not great. And I guess it's interesting you know, and having this extra layer of infection and so on, it's actually quite, uh, you know, you look at the, the descent's kind of simplicity, which actually kind of works better. Um, that here, you know, and, and also that multi-tiered monster thing that you talked about, that's kind of like, ah, oh, what is this? What is this? And, and as I Google pictures of the monsters in this movie, you know, they're more like Cloverfield-esque or something like that. But the the... The drawings of them that I find online look better than the, I don't know, the execution of them on screen. Uh, yeah, I don't know. F- flying's just not that cool here. Underground flying. Well, flying can be cool, but underground flying, that's the problem I've got. When's flying cool? What's a, what's a, good, what's a good flying monster movie? <laughs> exactly. I, you know, tell me, bird damage. I think the problem is, is that you've got to basically have an environment where they actually can justify the flying. Now- I know some podcast listeners will be thinking, well, hang on, bats live in caves and they've got wings and they fly around. True, they do. However, bats are also a lot smaller. These things are enormous. So proportionally, the cave system has to be pretty damn tall and big to justify them having wings. So it's not um, necessarily a deal breaker. I just don't think it's the best usage of it. Um, that's very scientific of you, Ben. Are you saying that the 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 size and strength of their wing, wings would feel like they would necessitate a much, much, much larger space to be able to fly in? You know, it's like if you get a bird and put it in a small cage, it's going to be quite unhappy because it can't fly around enough. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yes. Yeah. Anyway, that's just my loose theory. I th- it's a good point. I think an interesting point to also make, though, is – the science behind the design. I think the science behind the design of the creatures, the crawl or the crawl dwellers or cave dwellers in the descent makes more sense, right? You can sort of understand that they go blind because they're underground the whole time. Although you'd also argue that their eyesight should improve in the dark. Well, perhaps, oh. but they look like heavy masturbators too. <laughs> what does that mean? Strong forearms? Well, you know, you go blind. Oh, right. Didn't you ever hear that thing as a <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. as a child? Went to Catholic boys' school. That, that, did, that expression came up quite a bit. Um, yeah, there you go. I think, though, for me, I'm of the era where I saw the fluke, the white creature in that one episode of The X-Files. Ah, oh, classic episode. And that, to me, is one of the top three 
episodes of the entire X-Files series. Ah, the banger. And one of the best monsters of the week. And for the audiences who can't recall, basically it was this humanoid creature that had evolved, I think, on a Russian um, nuclear space, nuclear boat or something where a Russian worker falls into a vat of, what, radioactive sewage and then evolves into this white- some Yeah, some sort of genetic, yeah. Yeah, and then evolves this white- Humanoid fluke, yeah, that lives in the in the sewers, and I think does he kill people by just attaching to their back, like it, it bites them and sucking. Them? I believe it bites them and then infects them with its lava. That's right. Yeah, yeah, like some sort of flatworm. It's great. <laughs> so gross. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Very good. And so basically, these creatures to me are a dead ringer for fluke man, um, which is a backhand compliment. Like both. That was one of the best monsters I've ever seen of all time, Fluke Man. But these kind of look very similar and, excuse the pun, carry the same sort of character DNA as that. Um, and I think that's also why I liked it more because I have that association. Yeah. Oh, well, that's nice. It's nice. It can remind you of, you know, happy happy times of your youth watching the X-Files. <laughs> um, <laughs> um any other comments before we move on to our awards, mate? Any other anything they could have done better, do you think, or missed opportunities? Well, look, what's interesting about this movie is I think we could both agree that <clears throat> it's definitely not as good as The Descent. However, as we move into the awards, I think you'll find that the cave it's going to it's going to collect quite a few. It's still going to collect quite a few. Okay. There's a lot of things oh. that I quite like about this movie, you know, in that sort of B picture uh, enjoyment that I particularly, you know, treasure. Well, I don't want to jump the gun and I do want to keep some of our powder dry for those awards, but I will say this. I think this film does a better respect in relation to casting to distinguish the characters. And also, it's also lit better. When I say lit better, not more realistically, but lit better for the audience's benefit to decipher the action. Uh, and that's why it's more of an action movie than a thriller movie because you see more of the monsters and you see the, the scare coming and he focuses as much on the fight as the scare, the fright. But also I think the benefit is by having actors of different genders and different nationalities with different accents. Totally. When they're in the dark, you know who the Aussie is. You know who Kieran Darcy Smith is because he has that distinctly Aussie accent. And I think that there was something similar in another American film made in Australia underwater called Sanctum where you give different accents to people and just you can spot them, you can hear them and decipher one from the other. I think that was a missed opportunity with The Descent. Um, like there was one woman Sanctum. who had this uh, short hair. Sanctum. But the- Sanctum. That's right. Sanctum. Did that come out the same year? No, I don't think so. No. That's a James Cameron produced movie directed Sanctum. by an Australian with uh, Richard ah, Roxburgh in the lead. Sanctum. Where they're all cave dwellers underwater. And it was one of those films that was one of the first films to use genuine 3D after Avatar. Right. And that was about underwater cave divers. Wow. I wonder if anyone's mentioned Sanctum in the last, you know, Sanctum, Sanctum. I once knew a girl who lived on Sanctum Street. <laughs> there you go. Hard, hard segue. <laughs> Sorry. All right, go ahead. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's get to our um, noted similarities, coincidence or ripoff. Well, these films have been made at a similar time, but I don't think there's any sort of indication looking at the traits of either movie that one copied the other. Do you? 
No, no, but it's 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 interesting how they have very some a couple of very similar plot points. But of course, I think those are the sort of plot points you would bang into a movie like this. You know? Yeah, totally. Like I think they feel yeah. A thousand monkeys in a thousand rooms would come up with the same plot but beats because when you've got people on a mission getting attacked by monsters, there are certain beats you hit. Exactly, exactly. And we can both agree that in this case, for all of these Spielunkers, it is the blurst of times. <laughs> all right, which film is age better? Ah, The Descent, clearly. Agreed. And I think also being practical effects as well helps a lot. Uh, we've already discussed plot holes and missed opportunities. Uh, or were there any others you wanted to bring up? Anything that just jumped out as a, huh? Well, I mean, I think if if you want to, you know, just nitpick things, it seems weird that something like The Cave, they didn't find this underneath like a Knights Templar Romanian church earlier, you know, like, like in The Descent they go out of their way to say this is an undiscovered cave system and Juno lies to them and takes them to a different one and all this kind of stuff. Whereas in The Cave, you know, I don't know, I just kind of feel like if they had built this, you know, ancient Romanian church, someone would have figured out that there's like a trapdoor. Well, I think though it's set up that basically everything collapsed in on itself, so it sealed it off. That's why. Uh, uh, yeah. I guess. Okay, maybe I was maybe I was fetching a Pepsi from the fridge when they explained that. <laughs> um, all right, let's jump to trivia, a bit of the behind the scenes. So little did you know that with The Descent, apparently most of the cast didn't see the cave dwellers until they're on set just to try and really capture their fright. And Natalie, was it Natalie Mendoza? Oh, yes. She mentioned that she basically wet her pants both laughing and crying when she first saw them because they saw them actually appear on set in a a lit set, so it was very much in the spirit of the scene, and that's where they first saw those faces. Do you believe that? I, I I believe what happens is you're getting your own makeup on, and then you see someone in a white outfit in the distance nearby with a bathrobe on. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's and that's how you first see them, and not actually when they call action. That's right. You see them. You're 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 at lunch, and there they are. You know, drinking through a straw and hoofing some darts you know, behind the production tent. You go, oh, I guess that's not that scary. <laughs> I, I, I never believe stories like that, that, that they didn't see them until, you know, yeah, right. You know, if you've ever been on film sets and stuff, no, nah, no. Nah. But it's a great anecdote. Yeah, I agree. It's a stretch. Um, the Cave, uh, shot in Australia, they created a 70, oh, sorry, 750,000-gallon tank just to shoot the underwater stuff. Which is quite remarkable. See, okay, here's you say shot in Australia. This piece oh, of- oh, actually, no, I'm reading different stuff here as well. Actually, mainly shot in Romania. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was did we think it was shot in Australia because Bruce Hunt directed it? Yeah, that's right. And also, there's an Australian in it. But yeah, maybe it was all shot. In- and it was produced by Andrew Mason. Maybe they shot a bit of both, a bit in Australia and a bit in Romania as well. Maybe. Yeah. Um. Yeah, anywho, um, the only other thing was you mentioned earlier writer H.P. Lovecraft. Were you thinking of that short story, The Beast in the Cave? Apparently that's actually very, very similar in plot to this. So it might have been the inspiration. Oh, okay. I, 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 I wasn't, but, <laughs> but good. And one last bit of trivia. Uh, let's start with uh, The Descent. Apparently the production name during the filming was Chicks with picks. <laughs> ah, very good. Very good. Um, actually, also one more thing. 
Uh, Neil Marshall wanted all of the villainous crawlers to actually be professional actors rather than stuntmen or dancers to try and infuse them with more character so that w- the way they moved, the way they looked, the way they reacted was from the way that an actor would react rather than someone just going through the motions. Right, right. You want to really dive deep into their backstories and understand <laughs> that, you know, it's... Trauma of childhood divorce, yeah. That's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> okay, let's uh, do casting what it should have could is. Look, these films are both uh, pretty small films and so it doesn't appear that there were any sort of like surprises where people dropped out or whatever. So it looks like pretty much they got who they could get, particularly The Descent, that was a really low-budget movie. So no particular news there. But when it comes to Spot the Aussie, we've got one, Gabe. Well, in front of the camera, on the cave, is that what we're talking about? Actually, in front and behind, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Kieran Darcy-Smith. It's so funny when you see movies like this and there's an Australian, particularly when they're playing very Australian, you know? Uh, uh, Well, actually, he usually plays in most films very Australian. Oh, yeah. You know, laconic personality, the accent, you know, a bit scruffy and scrappy. Yeah, yeah, Uh, you know... That lays it on thick. Very thick, um, very thick. And, of course, you've got Bruce Hunt, the director, as well, behind the camera. He's Australian. Yeah, totally. I think I just I said Andrew Mason was a was a producer. I think Ross Emery, I think the cinematographer was Australian. I bet there's a whole bunch of them, you know. Um, um, yeah, perhaps with Australian financing kicked in at some point, which explains all those connections, or maybe shooting a bit of it, you know, in Australia. That's right. Um, let's jump to Big Trouble and Little Production. Look, it looks like both films were reasonably seamless productions uh, and nothing kind of went too pear-shaped. There weren't any accidents, no one died and um, I think so were shot in sets. It was all pretty safe as houses. Um, although when it comes to marketing, methodology, madness and missteps, did you hear what happened with the Descent's release? No, what happened? Well, the film was sort of like really trying to focus on fear one of those bombings occurred in the underground, their subway-esque train stations underground around the same time. And so the whole idea of people being trapped underground <laughs> and being scared shitless wasn't actually a really good marketing pitch at the time. Ah. And so they changed their entire marketing pitch at the time to focus less on the tunnels and the fear to avoid sort of drawing any analogy with the underground trap situation of those victims which is why they said they actually their box office was a bit impacted and might explain actually the quite distinctive poster redesign, which we'll get to in a second as a result. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, which terrorist attack was that one? Like was there a, some sort of big one, big one in 2005? Uh, yeah, it was those London bombings that occurred. Uh, do you remember the, a few happened at the same time all over the place? Um, they were a series of coordinated... Islamic suicide attacks. Yeah, right. And there was like one on a bus and there was one in the train station. Oh, yeah, of course. Fuck, yeah, yeah right. There are like three that the all occurred. 7-7 seven, yeah. seven or whatever the 7-7, uh, yeah. Seven, yeah. Yeah. Seven, seven, yeah. So yeah, right. a tragedy, you know, for all those people but also just really crappy timing. It's like when people had films that were due to be released uh, on September the 11th, 2001, just one of those things. Donnie Darko, I'm looking at you. Yeah, and I think it was that film by... Uh, Gregor Jordan, the Australian director, Buffalo Soldiers, similar situation. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's jump to the box office. Which movie do you think was the box office champ, Gabe? Well, this is interesting because 
I, I'm sure the descent, but I kind of feel like the descent also really grew in popularity off the back of its um, DVD release. But you tell me. Yeah, I was surprised because a lot of these UK genre films I tend to really enjoy, but they just get like a really small release and become a bit of a cult following on Viewing Demand or Blu-ray or DVD. The Descent was made for a budget of £3.5 million, which equates to about $10 million American dollars. It made $57.1 million wow. internationally, which is pretty amazing. Um, that breakdown was $26 million in the States plus thirty-one million uh, internationally for the worldwide total of $57 million, which I think is pretty amazing for, you know, a film which has all-female protagonists with British accents those films, unfortunately, are often prejudiced against in the international market, particularly by American audiences. So that's a great score. Whereas The Cave, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. So that film costs a lot more to make. It costs $30 million, three times as much. It did $15 million domestically in the States, plus $18 million internationally for a worldwide total of $33 million. Wow, it's it's really yeah. interesting that it had almost or more than triple the the budget of the descent. Because um, I would say, you know, it's not it's not it's not all there on screen. It doesn't look. I, I'd say it's, it's CGI creatures. I reckon yeah, spent all their so. money on that and some sort of like CGI artwork extension to make those big caves feel quite expansive underground. Yeah, I guess so. You know, uh, Eddie Cibrian, don't come cheap. <laughs> oh, let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. Have a guess, Gabe, which one uh, impressed the critics and the fans? I mean, The Descent must have very good reviews, right? Surely. Yep, The Descent has 86% with the critics versus The Cave, a very lousy 12%. What? No, yep. that's 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 yeah. mean. That is mean. An audience really went for The Descent with 76%, but only gave The Cave 28%. I, I, I understand how Rotten Tomatoes works and maybe the cave just got tons and tons of, you know, two and a half out of five putting it just in rotten territory. But I don't know, that seems unfairly low for what is quite a, you know, a, it's, a, it's, it's not a bad time. It's not a bad time. <laughs> not a bad time. All right, let's go to the awards, mate. Let's start with best title. The Descent. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, what is the cave? The cave could be anything. Exactly. The descent actually speaks to both the location, but also the internal journey. So I like that. That's right. The moral. The cave could be, a, you know, that could just be about some sort of, you know, uh, we ho club. Hey, where are you going? We're going to the cave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Best poster. What do you describe to our podcast listeners? What are the posters we see on IMDb, and which one do you think is best? Okay. Well. All right. So, the descent. The poster for The Descent is uh, one, two, three, four, five, six women all sort of holding each other, ducking or something, but their body shape makes it appear to be a skull. It's quite cool. And on that point, Gabe, that's actually based on Philippe Halsman's uh, photograph called Involptuous Moors, which uh, Salvador Dali used. Wow, and look it, at you. Yeah, and it looks actually really similar. I think this is actually one of the most iconic posters of all time uh, in this particular, for this particular film, The Descent. So talk us through the cave because it would be pretty hard to beat this one. Yeah, totally. And, and, and I guess, in fact, there's quite a lot of posters that sort of took The Descent style and aped it. Uh, the cave's poster, though, 
the caves poster is uh, what could only be described as bubbles, a shaft of light with some bubbles. Like, look, this the cave poster is not very good. I, I can't even. T- are they people in the bubbles? Is it just? Is it just? I think they're just bubbles underwater. That's a bit shit. And light. Like, it's a really, really bad poster. Like, I mean, I would not want to see that movie. It doesn't tell you anything about the po- movie. It doesn't tell you anything about that this is a movie about cave divers underground that get attacked by creatures. What it appears to be is a shaft of light with bubbles and it's underwater. I know. That's it. That's it. Like, it could be a film about the building of spotlights in submarines. Like, it tells me nothing about the movie. I, I don't even know how you go to the cinema and everyone signs off on that being the best representation of the movie. It's it, it's a weird one, isn't it? Like to be on the a fly on the wall of the marketing, you know, meeting where they went, that's the one. That's the one that the kids will respond to. Oh, they're going to love this champagne bubbles. You know? To me it's an example of doing everything wrong. Like you have a title called The Cave which tells you nothing about the film other than its location. But you know, I mean, as you said before, like a cave can be like something like, you know, uh, something we've, we see in a Robin and Crusoe type movie like, you know, Tom Hanks doing his thing on an island by himself or it could be about a bear that lives in a cave or it could be a caveman film. Like there's no sense of like the genre at all. It's just a location. And then you go, okay, well, we've got that title. Let's try and at least infuse underground vampire-esque monsters with cave divers, like abseiling. Like, give me something. Give me something. Yeah. I'm just so disappointed by it. So disappointed. Well, well, there are other posters, to be fair. Um, As I click through, you know, the IMDb posters, there's a much better one uh, which has, like, the... The, the cave divers atop a body of water and underneath a giant, you know, giant open mouth, monster mouth, a maw, uh, you know, uh, uh, ready to eat them. And what's that thing called where you're, like, afraid of underwater? Uh, um, oh, whatever the phobia is. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's basically like a Jaws-esque image where you have, like, the side and profile of a monster. I mean, it's basically a Jaws ripoff, right? And they're on the top. Yeah, yeah, totally. But it's like at least if I saw that, I'd be like, hey, all right. Oh, thalassophobia, I believe, you know. It's definitely a poster that leans into thalassophobia. Yeah. But why not do that? But Well, because that particular poster looks like they go underground and they counter basically a dinosaur slash Jaws creature that's like the size of a house, which wouldn't represent the film at all. No, like this true. film is closer to <laughs> Alien or Aliens than it is to Jaws, right? So, yeah, you'll be disappointed by the first poster that we spoke about, but maybe the movie will improve upon that. Whereas the second poster, you'll be disappointed by the movie because there's never a giant, giant dinosaur monster. <laughs> all right. You can't win with the cave, basically. Yep, so... The Descent easily takes the cake. And if you haven't seen the poster for Descent, Google it. It looks fantastic. It's a great example to me of good poster design that you don't quite get the sense necessarily that these five women are cave divers, but you do get the sense that they're all women. So you get a sense as to the nature of the team. It's sort of like dark, so it implies underground. And it's just, to me, just classic design and makes it, it evokes curiosity. If you saw that film, you'd go, okay, it looks like a skull. This is going to be a horror thriller of some sort. That's right, you know. 
All right, let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. So just like those guys did in Armageddon, Gabe, who got their big break in these twin movies? Well, here's the thing. Shauna McDonald, who played the character of Sarah in The Descent, and Natalie Mendoza, who played the character of Juno in The Descent, why did they not off the back of this explode in popularity? Oh, look, you read my mind, and we'll say that for the award coming up because these two films, I think, of all the movies we've done before in um, this podcast series, this is our 50th, 50th episode now, I don't think I've encountered two movies where so many people didn't take advantage of the opportunities from these films. Like The Descent, right? This, to me, was a film that made five times its budget around the world and people have parlayed success like that or much less success into much more success than these actors have subsequently had. And obviously everyone has their own sort of stories behind the scenes as to why they choose not to to pursue their careers. But, yeah, um, I don't think anyone either took advantage of a big break or got a big break unfairly in the descent besides Neil Marshall. Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, for the for the cave, was anyone was anyone rocketed into stardom off this? I think they tried to do that for like Cole Hauser to make him a leading man. I think they tried with everyone, and unfortunately, it didn't come off. I mean, Piper Perabo already had a career. Lena Hadley from Game of Thrones was just you know just doing sort of like steady work, playing Sarah Connor in the Terminator TV series and acting in a few British films, but. I don't think this film helped her career. Daniel Day Kim, here he had a career from Lost, uh, I think at this stage, or maybe Lost was just taking off. So, yeah, I don't think anyone got a big break at all. Yep. All right. Let's jump to the Before They Were Famous Award, otherwise, or otherwise known as Blink and You'll Miss Them. So The Descent, again? Well, I, it's hard. Yeah. Yep, another. <laughs> the cave. Uh, I mean, like you said, everyone sort of was chugging along. It's got one of those sort of like, you know, pretty pretty solid B list casts. I guess I guess for a for a casual viewer, you might watch this and go, "Wow, it's Cersei," you know, and point at Lena. Yeah, Lena, Lena Hitty gets it. I think for that reason. You know, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Or you're a big Yellowstone fan, I guess, and you point at Cole Hauser. <laughs> I'd say they're more Game of Thrones fans than there are Yellowstone fans. So Hey, Yellowstone is the highest rating cable show at the moment or something. You know, I've heard that and I actually do want to see it, but it's in that list with another, you know, 14,000 shows to see. But I haven't actually heard good things about it. But, Ben, 13,999 of those shows don't have – Uncle Kevin Costner in them. <laughs> oh, it truly is the golden age of television. All right, the Tommy Lee Jones Stiller Award gave. Who did the most with a small or poorly written role? Well, how, how are we defining small role here? I, this is season three. I'm a little rusty. I was never really uh, on it anyway. Just, just can you just give me the like, 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 what is a small role here? Like, okay, a small role is a role that has a short duration on screen right. or a poorly written role could just simply be the main character who elevated what was on the page and made it better. Right. So okay. it can be the lead or it can be just a character who kind of ducks in, but, you know, it takes a lot of attention because they're really good. 
Okay, okay. Well, for the dissent, then I'm going to say um, Natalie Mendoza. Yeah, I concur entirely. She's great. I think she walks a line between making you feel for her, but also root against her. And I think that's a lot to do with her performance, not just what she says and does on screen. Um, How about the dis- no the cave? Look. I'm going to go with Cole Hauser. He has to play a guy turning into a Batwing Man monster, you know, which is a very B, you know, movie idea, and I think he does it pretty good. Yeah, okay. I was going between Cole and Lena Headey because I always just find her believable. Right, sure. Um, Yeah, okay. I'll give it to Cole this time. Just this time. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the Mickey Rourke Award, which I hinted to before, so named in honour of the guy who squandered many an opportunity to kick on. So, Gabe, who didn't take the most of their opportunities? Yeah, and, and look, to be fair, it's not like these people squandered it like, you know, Mickey Rourke might have squandered it with drugs bad and bad personal choices that's right. oh, that we know of for all we know you know Shauna McDonald is tent boxing somewhere while getting copious plastic surgery and you know I don't know mainlining crank don't know don't know yeah I, I just don't want to be unfair to these women you know? no, no I, I agree I think um I'm I'm, I'm actually just disappointed that Shauna McDonald didn't kick on uh Natalie Mendoza had a few TV roles after this but didn't really do much either so when I dug deep into their IMDb filmographies, I just was surprised how little content some of them were doing. Like the woman playing Holly, Nora Jane Noon, I mean, she was fantastic and looks like she's just doing short films at the moment. So unfortunately didn't kick on. How about In the Cave? Uh, I don't know. I mean, again, they're just a solid bunch of programmers, you know, Chipping away, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I do think Cole Hauser hasn't taken advantage of the opportunities that he's had or just a, has had bad luck in general. I mean, was it? <laughs> I think it was Goodwill Hunting, wasn't it, where he first appeared for many people? And if you look at the career. To, to be fair, to be fair, he turns up in enough stuff that my, my missus is very sick of me pointing at the screen and going, that's Cole Hauser <laughs> whenever he turns up on something. Maybe the know. problem actually is that he doesn't appear in big enough roles or good enough content. You know, I'll I'll make her watch something like Olympus Has Fallen, you know. She wanted to watch some better, classier movie. Oh, no, let's re-watch it. And there he is. And I'll point and go, that's Cole Hauser. she go. All right. Well, and does he get it? Well, she, he, he gets it. He gets it. My wife okay. does not get it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top and was it their career high? Neil Marshall. Yeah, Neil Marshall, I agree. Anyone in The Descent? Neil Marshall. Neil Marshall. Clearly, Neil, Neil Marshall. Oh, actually, can I go back for a sec? We never do this, but I feel like we have to. We left off an obvious person for the Mickey Rourke Award um, who has sort of didn't take advantage of the opportunities. The director, Aussie director. Oh, Bruce. Bruce Hunt. Very interesting IMDb filmography. Drops off the radar pretty much after this film, having done – second and third unit on Matrix films and so on and other sort of US films shot in Australia. It appears he has a career now pretty much doing TV commercials as a director. But oh, he's, he directed some massive um, ads, I believe, back in the day. So would you say he 
didn't take advantage of his opportunities because people have made films worse than The Cave but got ahead just because they showed competence in being able to direct a variety of actors with action and special effects on a big budget. Yes. So I reckon actually, unfortunately, Bruce might get it. Okay. Well, there you go. All right. This is a bit like that whole moment with uh, Twilight and uh, La La Land. <laughs> yes, okay. The, uh, the award's been relitigated. Okay, let's go to the Best Dialogue Award. So I've got a great line here from The Descent. Quote, this gear is 100 years old. If someone had made it out, they would have named it, referring to the cave system. I thought it was great. I thought it was just a really succinct way to explain how entirely screwed they were. Right. Do you have any 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 quotes burnt into your memory from the, the movie The Cave, though? Uh, no. Um, by the way, <laughs> there was one more from the descent I liked, which was, I'm an English teacher, not fucking Tomb Raider. Um, should have said not Lara Croft, but, yeah, I get it. No, nothing in the cave at all. Um, I saw one line which they had in uh, IMDb, which was when Charlie says, they fly, they freaking fly. Um, it reminds me of that line you see, I think it's in Solo, which was one of those Star Wars prequels they made about Han Solo's origins, where suddenly the stormtroopers sort of like fly with these turbo packs and Han Solo says, what, they fly now? Which is kind of funny because they actually don't fly at any other stage at all. Yeah, that's right. They'll never fly again. Yeah. Maybe maybe the, the Empire was just testing out the technology uh, when Han Solo was a young man and realised that strapping stormtroopers, who don't seem to be the smartest, uh, you know, uh, group of cannon fodder-esque, uh, you know, guards, it was a bad idea. They just kept flying into each other. Banging their heads on things, you know. Well, Boba Fett died or implicitly died in Return of the Jedi when his little jetpack got screwed over and he kind of like went, wee into the sand monster's stomach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but somehow he's back and out and Temuera Morrison again and they made a TV. I don't know. I don't uh, no one ever dies in the Marvel or Disney universe. Not really. No, no. So lame. So any other quotes from you? Uh, or the Descent get it just by being... Competent. <laughs> yes, totally. All right, the Nicolas Cage Two in the Scenery Award. Oh, I actually think everyone was pretty grounded in The Descent. No one really jumped out as really kind of, you know, turning it to 11. What do you think? No, no. Look, the, 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 I sort of, what's that SAG Ensemble Award? I sort of kind of give that to the cave here. You know, yeah, the, the post is like a metaphor, isn't it? Yeah. Like everyone's together, they kind of are all equally. They're all good. kind of hamming it a little bit, you know. Morris Chestnut, uh, you know, he's given a bit of ham. Piper Parabaro, she's given a little bit of ham. Cole Hauser, as we've said, ham. Cole Hammer, you know. To me, all- I, I, to me, it's Cole. I think Cole with totally. those with his burning eyes. I think Cole's yeah. doing too much. So. Yeah. For me, Cole and gets the Nicolas Cage chewing the scenery. They, they do that thing, spoiler, at the very end of this movie, The Cave. Uh, once they've got out of The Cave, they go to, like, lunch somewhere and Lena Headey turns up and uh, they have some little chat and then she lowers her sunglasses or something and she now has the 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 infection eye. And vanishes into the crowd, I know. And then you're like, oh, look out. Sets up the oh. sequel that never came. Yeah, it's like the end of Dark Man, you know, where she turns back and it's like, ooh, he's Dark Man. <laughs> uh, All right. So, yeah, they didn't really. Cole gets it then. Not until okay. Cave Dad. Cave Dad. All right. 
the taking a paycheck award speaks for itself. Um, I think it's pretty clear in the dissent that everyone needed the paycheck and no one was actually, you know, like no one was slumming it. I think everyone was actually working at 100%. So no sort of, uh, you know. It's kind of true for both of these movies, don't you think? It's not like even though The Cave has a slightly more well-known cast, it's not like they plugged in, you know. Uh, Bruce Willis for a 10-minute cameo. Yeah, to play Dr. Bakovia or something, you know. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think everyone was actually striving to make a good movie and earning their keep and no one was doing this just for the cash. No, so no winner. No winner, okay. The Stephen Toblowski Award. Uh, which actor triggered Hey, It's That Guy, Gabe? Well, no one from The Descent. And basically everyone from the main cast of The Cave. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. For me, it was always uh, Piper Parabo and P- Lena. Parabo. Parabo? Piper Parabo and Lena Headey. I'd say those two. But then, of course, in retrospect, you start seeing Daniel Kim from Lost, Cole Hauser, of course. Dude, Morris uh, Chestnut from Boys in the Hood. Oh, yeah. From Anac- Anaconda 2. Nice. From Under Siege 2. Man, like. I would have to give it to Piper from. Uh, Cody Eggley, because this came out only, what, five years after that? Okay, fair enough. I think she was going to be like, at the time she was touted as the next Julia Roberts. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Um, I would definitely say for me it'd be Natalie Mendoza from The Descent. How about you? Yeah, look, she probably deserves it for that role, but, you know, like um, – in the cave, we have you know, like I like it when Daniel Day Kim turns up in stuff. I always think he's pretty, pretty good value. Um, like he's always solid. Yeah, that's okay. Fair enough. Um, all right, we'll give it to her then. Okay, you know, just Done. give it to her. The Memphis Reigns Award. Who had the most ludicrous name? A la Nick Cage from Gone in sixty seconds. Uh, they're all, but they don't even give characters in the descent like cool names with surnames, so it can't be any of them. No, right? Uh, and if we go to the cave, oh, we got one here. Which one? We got one here. Okay, so Morris Chestnut's character is named Top Buchanan. <laughs> yeah, that's a, okay. that's a great fucking name. That's definitely that's the winner. Name. That that's um, the winner. That's the winner. Maybe it. Maybe it. Maybe the existence of a Top Buchanan also uh, indicates that there's a bottom Buchanan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Top gets it. Okay, the Memento Award. Um, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched these movies. Uh, for me, with the descent, I'd forgotten this awesome kind of like visual where you see her ascending out of the cave. Oh yeah, in a side-on profile. It's like looking at you know like the cross section of a cave where you see her climbing or sort of like um, uh, clambering as quickly as possible over this mound of skeletons up this shaft of light to escape. To me, that was looks spectacular. I'd actually forgotten that particular visual. Mm. How about you? Well, I was going to say something that I mentioned earlier, which is the crawlers using the toilet. But as I actually remember more clearly in my head, I think that's in part two. So uh, I can't recall it. So that right, there you go. Why. So the moment that yeah. I forgot from this movie that I remembered, it turns out it's not in this movie. Does that count? Uh, no. So I think. <laughs> right. Unless you've got a, a winner from the cave, the descent's going to walk away with this award. Okay. Well, just keep walking, the descent. <laughs> you've earned it. All right. The Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard. So did any of these movies inspire a crop of clones? 
Well, I'd say they kind of are more in the tradition of movies like The Thing and zombie movies. So, you know, it's just a bit of a riff on that. Um, I can't, I mean, there was obviously a sequel to The Descent, but I don't see anyone remaking these films and slapping new titles on them, do you? No, I mean, Sanctum, as we mentioned, but that's not about, there's no monsters in that, is there? I've never seen it, so I've got no idea. I think it's just basically about people running out of oxygen and getting lost. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't feel like these were the monster part of this evolved monsters, you know, monsters that affect your DNA. They didn't initiate that. No. Okay. All right, so no winners there. Now it's time, Gabe, for that time of the podcast. The Milk and the Speed Cow Dry Ward, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. Okay, let's imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to The Descent of the Cave, and they're both about a team of cave divers who fight for survival when they encounter a species of evolved humanoid monsters that want to eat them. So, first of all, which film do we make a sequel to, and what's our pitch to a studio executive to make it, with an awareness that they've already made a sequel to The Descent? Right, right. What's what's interesting is that, yeah, they made a sequel to The Descent, so perhaps not that, although we could, I suppose, make just another sequel that either, you know, uh, took took the events of part two and then, you know, uh, ex- explored from there. But, but The Cave sets up a sequel, right? And I just want to talk about that for a second because we mentioned, you know, Lena Headey turns out she's infected now and she wanders off and the idea is, oh, these infected cave monsters are now above ground. That's kind of stupid. Like, would would the sequel for that then be that they're just flying around in the daytime? In is that is that what this sequel is promising at the end of the cave? What do you think? Well, okay. Before we go into that possibility, we've got to ask the question: Which film, from an economic point of view, should we justify doing a sequel to? Well, look, clear, cl- clearly that's the descent. You know, uh, uh, I, I guess I just wonder. You know, if a movie's kind of within its within its sort of setup has has created this opportunity for a sequel, has it even capitalized on a good idea for a like? Do we? Uh, yeah, okay. if we were going to do a sequel to the cave, would we want to scratch that anyway and go? Oh, actually, let's retcon the very ending of the the cave because it feels like the cave locks you into an idea. Do we want that idea? Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, the thing is. Uh, let's think, are there many films where the sequel has been better than the first film where we can take the property but make it just a better version of that particular concept? I can't think of many. I think of films that kind of take the concept originally and then swing off in a wild direction and make something else. The best example is probably that Vin Diesel sci-fi fantasy series. You know, it starts with Riddick. Oh, Pitch Black to Chronicles of Riddick to Riddick. Starts with Pitch Black. Then he goes Chronicles of Riddick and then it kind of goes back to the tone of the first one with Riddick. So with this one, we could just sort of like scrap the caves set up for a sequel if we wanted to and basically it turns out that she dies shortly afterwards because these uh, cave-dwelling monster-like pterodactyls just can't survive outside, which would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, like totally. I guess what's more interesting um, – we do a sequel to the third descent. Sorry, a third descent movie, and you have to try and pitch to me how the second descent movie ends. 
Or we just take the cave and say, okay, what if it's like Jurassic Park or those movies, right, where you take the monsters or the dinosaurs and you place them in civilization? So when they've tried that, if you want to go for analogy with the Jurassic Park movies, it kind of becomes a bit like a Godzilla or King Kong, King Kong movie, doesn't it, where basically you have the primitive clashing with civilization and people are just running for their lives. It's very much in the you know vein of something like War of the Worlds where – you know, you just find that technology and modern comforts just can't keep you safe from, like, these prehistoric threats. Um, I don't know. You could make that movie, but it's not the same type of movie as the original movie. I don't think it's better. Yeah, yeah. People running from pterodactyl monsters. I mean, have we had a movie like that? It feels like a very B-grade kind of sci-fi movie. What's an example of something... You mentioned before, I think we were chatting about these ideas about the mist. Okay, but here, here, here you go. I'll tell you a movie that is people running from a pterodactyl monster, and we've done a twin movies about two of them. Remember when we did uh, – uh, oh, I can only remember the, the – the, what was the oh, – fucking hell, this is embarrassing. John Krasinski, A Quiet Place. Oh, A Quiet Place and The Silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And the silence. You know, those are both movies about people running from kind of pterodactyl-esque monsters that prey on people using, I guess, sound because they are... Okay. You know what you just hit on? This is the irony, is that if those pterodactyl monsters evolved underground, they probably have sonar abilities and rely on sound, right? So this basically means that The Cave is more like a sequel <laughs> to either of those movies, Right. Because that, that's what... Yeah, a pre- prequel. A prequel, prequel so a prequel. That's what actually would happen, right? These things hunt by sound. They escape into the surface world and then the 10 years pass and then we land at the movies The Silence or A Quiet Place. That's right. So so do we say <laughs> our pitches are, okay, what if in the sequel to The Cave it's a family struggling survival in a world where most humans have been killed by blind but noise-sensitive creatures? Uh, they're forced to use sign language to keep the creatures. At, I mean, have we have we snooked ourselves? I've got a better idea. What if we basically just what if we just pitch basically a prequel to a quiet place or the silence? Totally. There you go. We basically say we basically remake the cave but better. Uh huh. And or we just say, oh no, studio, you love world building. Now we're gonna take two of the most famous properties <laughs> on your filmography. The Descent in the Cave and Hands Come Together. Nice. Synergy. Nice. And bring them all together. And now Piper Perabo, who survives now in our version, becomes part of the Quiet Place universe. Right. So we're saying Piper Perabo, who when she was torn off the rocky face of the underground rock wall, uh, is in fact the lead monster in A Quiet Place. Exactly. That's in fact that's the canon. That's the canon. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Look, I'm struggling here, my friend. Well, I can't think of anything. Well, what about uh, your idea of Cave Dad? Like, like, um, you know, I think I think sometimes with these movies, you do the you know, Aliens is the most obvious escalation of an idea where it's like in the in the cave they were semi regular people and they weren't military. You know, like you could have some sort of thing where. Uh, a bunch of much more, you know, technologically and trainologically. How do you? What's the term for people who are better, better trained? Anyway, <laughs> they they turn up in Romanian Knights Templar church to go fuck up these monsters, and 
yeah, you know, Eddie Cibriano, whoever's like, don't go, don't go. And they're like, oh, it's just another bug hunt. And then, and then this, you know, it's just bigger. I don't know. I'm not that hot for that. Okay, I've got, I've got it. I've got it. Here we go. Are you ready? Okay, hit me. One of my favourite films, one of the most maligned films, even by the director himself, is Alien 3. Right. Cool thing Alien 3 does is it just basically does a hard pivot away from soldiers, guns, and like totally. space and tech to the reverse of that. Yeah. It's a monastery floating in space, right? Yeah, where you like none of the characters because they're all sex offenders. Yeah. Well, in fact, actually, it's a prison, but the original pitch was a monastery and the planet was made of wood. So the whole base. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, on the Vincent Ward's idea, I think, was, you know, some low oxygen. Exactly. Director. Fuck, amazing. Exactly. So, mate, why don't we, we take that and make it a prequel, right? Okay. Because the idea of a series of, like, monks and the, oh, the yeah. prisons okay. are very monk-like, right? And the idea that a series of, like, so it's, a, it's like the in the original kind of uh, opening scene, the cold opening of the cave, we see this sort of monastery that kind of collapses where these explorers are looking through it, right? We go right back. Right. Okay? We're in a monastery and we start off with like say just a view of all these frescoes on the walls, right, in in that time. And at the end of the movie we're going to end with frescoes which actually depict these kind of, you know, dragon-like creatures. And what, the, what our film is is based on those films that explains this is how the mythology of these creatures came about from this one incident that happened in this monastery a long time ago. And much like how, you know, dragons came about because people discovered dinosaur bones and sort of put two and two together and got five and had the idea of dragon mythology, right? So we basically have a bit like Alien 3. There's a monastery. Uh, in one of the crypts downstairs, they awaken some sort of creature. It takes over. The whole film becomes very much like Alien 3 where they're on the run, they're being sort of pulled apart, but they're using like technology of the time like, you know, cauldrons of tar and flame and, you know, homemade little kind of bombs and whatever to try and kill this one monster. And at the very end of the movie, perhaps the last monk standing either takes down the monastery and therefore kind of like creates a tomb and therefore you think the movie's over because it transpires, the monster survives and we realised the monster's actually like one of the older monks that was down there and died or whatever and he passed the virus to that one surviving monk and it kind of ends with this whole idea that these monks have, will evolve into these pterodactyl monsters and continue a civilization underground. I like it. I like it. You know, there's not enough movies that do uh, aliens or mutants versus uh technologically de-advanced civilizations. You know, the, the the tendency seems to always to be... You mean like our cowboys and aliens? <laughs> I mean, except for, yeah, I mean, you know. But, but like, on paper, look, I'd like... Look, on paper, I'd watch the shit out of a movie where a predator turned up to fight cowboys, you know? I'd, I'd, I, I actually agree. I agree with you 100%. Like, to me, aliens, uh, cowboys and aliens was a missed opportunity. Yeah, that's right. The idea of using old tech to try and overcome this terrible monster was one of the best things about Alien 3. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're obviously not the first people to ever mention this, but the thing at the end of Predator 2 where there's a sort of Napoleonic gun and stuff like that, that seems like a really cool idea because 
it's much harder for the, the characters. You know, you go bigger, you go the aliens thing, you got guys with bigger guns and they're just fighting more of the monsters. Ah, you know, but but it would be cool to see dudes uh, here who just have swords, you know, who must battle these creatures with swords. I'm into it. Oh, it's cool. Like imagine like, you know, think about some of the favourite films we love like First Blood and Predator, right? That's a case of just using a bit of sort of like handyman skills and, you know, uh, scouting skills and limited resources and, you know, nearby branches and rocks as uh, arrow blades and whatever to try and take down a fearsome force. This would be the same idea. But even cooler is that they're like monks. It's like In Name of the Rose meets Predator. Right. Oh, nice. And that I love In the Name of the Rose and I love Predator. And that's our pitch. Ah, that's our pitch. Mate, I am there for this. Wow. And, oh, and that's got me moist. And that's how we make a sequel to The Cave. We need a title though. What's our final walkaway title we're going to drop for this studio executive to get him to sign on the dotted line? Uh, the Cave, sort of colon, <laughs> Awakening. Okay. And uh, Cave, Knights, Night Cave, Night Cave. Uh, <laughs> night Cave, it's awesome. Uh, yeah. Cave Knight, Knight of the Cave, uh, Cave of the... Priest, ver- priest versus Monsters. Priest, Priest Knight, Night Priest. Uh, Last uh, Confession. Oof, that sounds like a, a kind of Shannon Tweed movie from, <laughs> you know. Just speaking of, you know, the seven for seven dollars, R-rated, high-level sex scenes. Uh, last confession. Oh yeah, let's let's rent that tonight, boys. <laughs> <laughs> the last confession or the haunted monastery. Um, uh, it's got to be a play on words in relation to the blood of Christ and aliens or something like that. You know, the blood of redemption. Uh, anyway, I think worst case scenario, uh, we have the cave awakening, and I'm happy with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Cave awakening. What are other words for cave? Cavern? Cavern. Grotto? Grotto. Grotto. <laughs> uh, the, that's a bit gross. That the di- hollow, hollow night. The dirty grotto. That sort of thing. Uh, anyway, look. All right, and that's how we do it. Okay, Gabe, we should tie a bow on it. That brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good. You can find Sam as at Showtown Sound on Insta. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work, musings and antics this week? Ah, Twitter, I guess. Uh, speaking of grottos, um, at Gabe Dowrick. You'll find that dirty little grotto at Gabe Dowrick. <laughs> and I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Insta and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you find this podcast uh, and all the rest in the usual places. Thank you for listening, folks. Great to be back in the hot seat, Gabe. It's nice to be back. Never stop spelunking. Oh, I'm just loving it. The uh, vocal cords are just twinkling. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to next week's app, which will be a surprise. But let me just say this. We have, I think, another 100 potential episodes of Twin Movies left in the can. Should we keep going with this bad boy? Because there are some amazing combos out there to come. So stand by. Uh, if you like this episode, if you like this series, please share it with your mates. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. See you, Ben. Bye.